Well, let me open us with a word of prayer and then we'll dive right into our teaching as we continue in chapter 2 of Joel. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, another day to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, this is such a special church. Every church that is uh, centered around Jesus Christ is special, but Lord, this is our church. This is where we attend, and we just thank you for the blessings that you give us week after week as we gather together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for Pastor Steve. I ask that you'd strengthen him even now as he's uh, preaching a uh, second service and Pray for us, Lord, that you'll give us ears to hear. Help us as we walk through this material to think deeply about the truths that are reflected by your word. And I pray, Lord, that the truths would not just be things that we hear, but rather we would think really and seriously about how we can become doers of the word. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything in chapter 2 is about the day of the Lord that's coming. And it's about repentance. That, that's the point. We have been walking through this over many weeks, and we're continuing in a section where Joel has taken and painted a picture of absolute disaster, of terror. He, he's looking into the near future, I believe, and he's telling them what will happen to them because God is sending a human army that's going to destroy them soon. God had already sent the locusts to get their attention, but obviously it wasn't enough because Joel continued on and said something worse than those locusts is coming. And Joel had made clear, and I, I've talked about the different interpretations, and I do think it's pointing towards a future human army, which most scholars think was the Assyrian army because of what actually happened in history. But verse 11 of chapter 2 says, The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great, for strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? In other words, this is not just another time in the history of Israel when a powerful army was going to come and bother them. This was God himself sending the army. They were carrying out his command. They had no hope before the Lord. They could not prepare. And despite all the warnings that God was giving them, they were still in danger of judgment. An army empowered by God could not be defeated. Who could endure the day of the Lord? No one can endure the day of the Lord in and of themselves. But as I mentioned two weeks ago when I began introducing this section, the doom and the gloom, the dark clouds, the thunder and the judgment building and the army marching, pause for a moment because Joel... Actually, the Lord, through Joel, is giving a ray of hope in the midst of everything. The day of the Lord and God's judgment are coming. The sins were that great, but there is a way out. So I'm going to read again, verses 12 to 14, and we're going to continue walking through this section. But follow along as I read verses 12 to 14. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. 
Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And as I originally outlined this, this is really showing us, it's all about repentance, but I outlined it as three marks of true repentance. And the first mark was that true repentance is timely. Verse 12, the first part, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Yet even now. God's the one speaking. God's the one calling them to repent. And he's saying, now, right at this moment, the storm has gathered, judgment is on the horizon, but now, cry out, return to me. It's an invitation. It's a gracious invitation from God. Everyone is supposed to have a sense of urgency in their heart. They hear God's invitation, return, they have time, and God doesn't give a guarantee beyond the present. I read many passages from Hebrews where he says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. That's what Joel's doing. Yet even now declares the Lord. This is God's invitation before it's too late. The second mark of true repentance, which we started covering before, and I'm going to finish it today, is this. True repentance involves a sincere change of heart. True repentance involves a sincere change of heart. Return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Again, this is the substance of the invitation. What does God want His people to do? Return to me with all your heart. Rend your heart, not your garments. It's interesting because this invitation is somewhat unique because it's going to God's covenant people. Even today, and I'll talk about this in a moment, actually I'll talk about it a lot, God gives a gracious invitation to sinners to come to Jesus Christ. But there's a sense that if we said that's a return to God, that's not exactly accurate because a sinner has been God's enemy. He wasn't in God's camp and walked away. He's, re- he's coming to God for the first time. But in this unique period of history, this was God's chosen people, and they wandered away, and so God would say return. But that word return in Hebrew, when it's dissected, really is the definition of what repentance is. You're going away from God in your sin and you turn to Him. That's repentance. Again, these were God's people. What He had always expected from them was their heart. I read it last week. I'll read it again. Deuteronomy 6, 4-6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. Jesus said that's the first and greatest commandment. But these people, and I read verses last week where they came out of Egypt and they said, all the Lord says we'll do, we'll obey, in an instant turn their back on Him. And that's the history of the Old Testament. That's the history of the Jewish people. But God over and over again showed grace and mercy... And that's what he's doing here. And so all that is a summary of what we've covered so far. Now we're jumping into some new material. 
But it's still under this idea of true repentance involves a sincere change of heart. It says, return to me with all your heart. And he says, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Now, those are just traditional exercises of brokenness. They're evidence of deep heart anguish of sorrow. There are countless places in the Old Testament where you see references to this. In fact, some references in the New Testament. But, for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, David was aware that Saul and his son Jonathan had been killed. Verse 11, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so also did all the men who were with them. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. So there's a sense in which when Joel says, Return to the Lord with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Everybody that heard this would understand. He's talking about true brokenness and sorrow. Mourning, in this case, not over the death of someone, but over the sins that individuals and the nation had committed. Now, it's important to understand that fasting and weeping and mourning in and of themselves are not what matters. It's about the heart. Fasting and weeping and mourning don't cause the return to the Lord. No, they're evidence of a heart that is broken over sin. They're the outward expressions in this context of a truly repentant heart. But I think it's interesting how under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Joel so quickly makes a differentiation that's very, very, very important. This is crucial. You could fast and weep and mourn and not repent. That's why Joel continues in verse 13, And rend your heart and not your garments. Again, what we just read in 2 Samuel, what did the first thing David do in his sorrow? He took hold of his clothes and tore them. So did everyone else. In other words, that was along with fasting and mourning and weeping, the ripping of the garments was a traditional way of saying, I'm in agony, I'm in anguish, my heart is broken. But what Joel was doing as a quick counter to an external show of contrition was saying, that in and of itself is not what's important. Don't worry about the tearing of the clothes. The issue is, have a broken heart. If you have those other things of the tearing of the garments or fasting and weeping and mourning in there because of your brokenness, that's okay. But they're not a substitute for issues of the heart. As you remember, that's why Jesus was constantly attacking the Pharisees because everything they did was an outward show. It was all about the ritual. And Joel knows that God is not calling them to do ritual here. He's calling them to recognize the severity of the separation between them and God that's been caused by their sin. And the only way to deal with that is to have a broken heart. 
This is one of those times when biblical truth intersects with our lived experiences. doesn't make the Bible true. The Bible's true regardless of our experiences. But this is one of those times where I think as we go through this a little deeper, we can see how this plays out. Because I want to keep reiterating that the external things in and of themselves don't accomplish anything. It all is a matter of is your heart broken and is it broken for the right reasons. You can tear your clothes and you can act sad and you can actually just be sad. You can genuinely feel sorry for things and yet not repent and not turn to the Lord. The Apostle Paul said something in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that bears exactly on what we're talking about. He said at verse 9, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. As Joel is confronting his nation about sin, Paul had confronted the church in Corinth about their sin. And he noted there were two types of sorrow. There's a godly sorrow that turns someone to God, repentance, and then there's a worldly sorrow that just makes people feel bad. I think in my life, and particularly since becoming a believer, I've seen this play out so many times that it's hard to fathom. Unbelievers can feel really, really, really bad when they do wrong. And it doesn't have to be an act. Unbelievers can genuinely feel sorry for what they've done. It's interesting because even though people are slaves to sin, they're enemies of God, God is still implanted in each one of us an innate sense of right and wrong, even though we violate it all the time. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. It's familiar words, but it says, For the wrath of God is revealed in heaven, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." that carries a lot of theological weight because it answers a question that people often ask about what about the person over there who didn't hear this, this, or this. There's something innate within us, even with our sin, because we have the image of God residing in us, there is something inside of us that understands that what we're doing is wrong. There's an inherent knowledge that there is a creator and though people suppress it, there still is an awareness of right and wrong. 
just from an intellectual standpoint, I'm always amused by people who absolutely are convinced there is no such thing as absolute truth, and yet they're so easily offended because what you did was wrong. Wait, where's a little bit of intellectual honesty there? But we see it in a small child when they do wrong. It's instinctive. It's wired into the sin nature. They hide. Or they lie. They run away. Unbelievers, including adults, in essence, do the same thing. The default reaction of humans when they sin and they know they have sinned is to hide either by hiding in their mind and pretending God doesn't exist or by literally covering up what they've done. I think it's interesting when you look at the fall in Genesis chapter 3, the very first reaction. Genesis 3.8, they'd already covered up because they figured out they were naked. 3.8 says this, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That describes most of humanity. They're hiding. Seems to be one of the traits that was passed on with sin to all of humanity. So where am I going with this? Again, when we look at words like what Joel's saying and the Lord is saying... Return to me with all your heart. Rend your heart, not your garments. There's an acknowledgement that it's very easy to go through the motions. It's possible to even feel bad and not repent. It's wired into us again, it seems, that we will fix it. I've seen it playing with little kids where they quickly, when they realize they're in trouble, shove the toy that they just stole right back across to the other kid. But I've seen the same thing with adults. One of the things I liked about my job as a lawyer, it gave me an opportunity to look at human nature. And my job was such, I wasn't a trial lawyer, I wasn't a criminal lawyer, but the type of education, employment law I did was such that if you ever were meeting with me, it generally was something bad. I was not somebody that brought good news, which meant I always see, saw people under duress, under stress, and quite often it was because they were caught doing something. People want to fix it. I'll make it right. I won't do it again. I'll repay it. I will, over and over, I'm going to delve into this, and this is a side note, it's not my um, notes, but in my various missions trips and in getting an opportunity to see a lot of Catholic things, I've always thought Catholicism is the perfect false religion because it gives you something to do. Here, just put money in this container. Just, just over here. Just do this. If the people of Judah, with the day of the Lord approaching, try to fix it, they're done. That's not what God wants. Again, this is important for us because what we're studying is so central to the gospel of Jesus Christ and what we tell people they need to do. And our goal is not just to make people feel bad about their sin in and of itself because they already feel that way. 
But that doesn't necessarily get you anywhere because if it's just the sorrow of the world, you're no closer to Jesus Christ. You're just a regular human who knows they were caught. Judas Iscariot is the most infamous person that ever lived. Can't imagine the judgment he's enduring even today. But the Bible's very clear. He felt bad about what he did to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 3, it says this, Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. And returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. This wicked, vile man who betrayed one of his closest friends for 30 pieces of silver knew he had done wrong. He even tried to give the money back. But it wasn't repentance. It was the definition of worldly sorrow. Continuing on in Matthew 27. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. In other words, we're not going to help you out. Verse 5. And he, Judas, threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed and he went away and he hanged himself. That's what Paul was saying. The sorrow of the world produces death. So here's the point that Joel is making and it's still a valid point that matters very much as we tell people what they must do to be saved. Joel wasn't just trying to make people feel bad so that they would try and fix their own problems. They had no hope of fixing their own problems. The army of the Lord's coming. You can't fight God. But God made it clear. You don't have to fight me. Rend your heart, not your garments. God always wants the heart, including today. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17 For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's what Joel is pushing for. That's what God wants from them, a broken and contrite heart. That's the basis of true repentance. This is the message of this book. Repent from your sinful ways. Don't hide. Don't fix it. Don't scheme. Don't try and figure out how to make it less bad. Just turn to God. It's a frightening thought. Hell will be full of people who claim they were doing the right thing. But God's not mocked, He's not fooled. He's not fooled by false religion. He's not fooled by the pretense of sorrow. He's not fooled by worldly sorrow. Without repentance from the heart, God's judgment cannot be averted. I'm not on a tangent or a side road. This is the essence of everything that's in this text. And it's so crucial because the truth that's here is the truth that's at the heart of the gospel. 
That's why the Bible is very clear what Jesus preached. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Even though Joel was written before Christ came, the shadow of the cross was there. And Jesus preached repent, but that wasn't just something that he said until he died. That was the preaching of the apostles after his death and resurrection. For example, in Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 12, there's a sermon being given to the people. Peter is preaching and he was preaching to the Jewish people. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? Again, they had just witnessed a miracle. Verse 13, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Verse 16. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect help in the presence of you all. Verse 17. And now, brethren, I know you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. Verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Verse 19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The message of Joel is really the message of the cross. God's judgment is coming upon you because of your sin. That's the message of Joel. How do you deal with that since no one can stand before the Lord's judgment? You turn to Him and His mercy. We now understand in a way that they could not have understood what that mercy looks like because of what Christ did on the cross. But the repentance that Joel is calling for is the Old Testament version of repentance that can save them. God's judgment is coming because of your sins, so repent and turn to God. That's still the message that we preach. And we preach that repentance and turning to God is possible because Jesus died for sinners. Now, I hope I can articulate my thoughts here because it's important what I'm about to say, and I worry that I will muddy things even a little bit. But since I've been a believer starting in 1993 when I came to faith, I've seen played out at times things I didn't understand but that I understand more now. There are people all over this country preaching a false gospel. They use the name of Jesus, but they're not actually teaching people what it means to believe in Jesus. 
I know that in part because that was me. I remember somebody telling me to pray a prayer on an airplane. So I got off the airplane and I prayed a prayer. Okay. Believe in Jesus. Okay, I believed in Jesus. And then I went about my life. And the worst years of sin in my life happened with me saying, I'm a believer. I, I prayed a prayer. And in the depths of my depravity, didn't even seem inconsistent to me. So I want to be very careful here. In fact, this is such an important issue. I mean, I wrote tons of papers on different things. I wrote a paper on this in seminary because I realized how central it was and I was so bothered by what had happened to me. Somebody with good intentions distorted the gospel to me such that I lived in deception for years. It's not their fault. I was the one with the sinful heart. And God's sovereign, I would have probably rejected the truth had I heard it accurately. But the whole world thinks America's a Christian nation. A lot of Christians think America's a Christian nation. But you look around and there's no godliness. There's no holiness. Church after church is standing up rejecting what the Bible actually says. And it's because people, in a sense, have rendered their garments and not their hearts before the Lord. They've done a measure of fasting and mourning and weeping, but not because of their brokenness over their sin before a holy God, but because it's a thing to do. And then I can join this club So let me try and be very careful here and make the distinction and encourage you since the ultimate point of this book is that all of us should have a sense of urgency in sharing the gospel with other people because the day of the Lord is fast approaching and we need to warn people. We want to make sure we warn them correctly. And this is going to take me a couple of minutes to walk through. Okay, I'll walk through fast. But it's very, very important. And it comes down to answering the question, what must I do to be saved? Because as you look around, that's what people need. And there are a lot of people who would never call for sinners to repent. And that's dangerous. We must call people to repent and believe Now, I want to be very careful, but I'm going to walk through this and quote scriptures. And here's the difference. Is believing enough or do you need to repent and believe? And there are some people who would say to someone like me that all those years of living in sin was not evidence that I had an unregenerate heart. It's just that you hadn't chosen to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ yet. You were a believer. You just hadn't repented. You hadn't obeyed. You hadn't done any of those things. But there's time for that, so don't worry about it. Now, there is a sense. I will never contradict Scripture that the way to be saved is to believe. In Acts chapter 16, verses 29 to 31... It's a situation where Paul and Silas, they were in jail. 
And then the Lord was doing things. Verse 29, And he called for lights and rushed in. This was the jailer. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Verse 30, And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And that's absolutely true. We dare not contradict the words of Scripture. But, we also have to understand that we don't pick and choose which Scriptures to focus on. They're all part of the picture. And the words of Jesus that I've already read from Mark 4, verse 15... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Paul and Silas were not preaching a different gospel than Jesus. It's just a showing us of the fullness of the picture of what belief actually means. Belief is not just an intellectual acknowledgement that, hey, there was a guy named Jesus that lived a long time ago and the Romans, they had this method of crucifixion that they used to kill people and he did that and all. It's way beyond that. True belief involves a brokenness over sin, a broken heart, a repentance, a turning away from sin and a turning to God, not perfectly, but in some measure. True belief results in a change of heart, which results in a change, not just in attitudes, but in behavior. Why Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the world, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. The obedience that comes from being a true believer is evidence of the repentance in the heart that turns you away from sin and to God. The first book of the Bible after I became a believer that I heard taught from beginning to end was the book of James. It just happened to be a Sunday school class taught by a guy that worked in construction. He was a really, really good teacher. I don't remember his name, but he was good. And he was just going bit by bit. So that's the first book as a new believer that I was reading. And I remember a lot of things from James, but there's a frightening verse in James. Frightening to me because of my own experience, but also frightening because of the state of American Christianity that is so watered down and so deceptive. James was writing to people from a Jewish background. And in verse 19, he says this, You believe that God is one, you do well. Here's what James was summarizing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was in Deuteronomy 6.4. For a Jewish person, that was called the Shema. Here's the point. That was the statement of faith. So he says, you believe that God is one. He's not just saying you believe in monotheism. He's saying you believe the truths of what Moses said in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. He said, you believe that. You do well. Here's the frightening part. The demons also believe and shudder. They believe the truth about God because they've seen it. 
they understand in ways we could never comprehend the truth of who God is. It really struck me as I was coming to grips with faith and is this true, the number of times that demons spoke to Jesus. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Here's why all that's scary. Because believing the facts about God is not enough. The demons believe. Why do they shudder? Because they're still going to be judged for eternity in hell. It's the difference between believing things intellectually and having those things grip your heart such that you repent. It's interesting because there are a lot of things that, and I read about them last week, where the thief on the cross who was at first mocking Jesus and then he realized who Jesus was and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. There's evidence of repentance in his heart. He even was even rebuking the guy that was attacking Jesus. Like, what are you doing? In other words, God was changing his heart. Matthew 13, I'm convinced, describes a lot of American Christianity that hasn't yet been exposed. Beginning at verse 20, Jesus explained in the parable of the sower, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Okay, I'll pray a prayer. I, I, I like that. I like this word. Verse 21, Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. In other words, he never was genuinely saved. He had a certain surface response to things. We have to be very careful to show people what turning to God actually looks like. You can't manufacture it. God has to regenerate our hearts. But you can point people who are deceived towards the reality of their deception. And a new believer, you can point them to the truth that this is not the end when you said, I believe. It's the beginning of a journey of repentance. I always felt called when I felt God calling me to ministry, to minister in a church here. I've talked to missionaries. I just never had the calling to go there because I've always been burdened by the fact that I could have lived in a church all my life and never heard the truth. I wasn't told when I was told, pray a prayer, that a genuine prayer would be about rending the heart, not just about saying the words. That I needed to repent of my sin, not to earn my salvation, but as an indication that I truly was broken and sorrowful for my sin and that I truly was turning to Jesus Christ and Him alone as my only hope of salvation, such that I would show my love for Him because I would obey His commandments, not perfectly, but at least trying. I'm going to stop. I got more notes. And I apologize for running a little long. But as we praise the Lord, as Steve was telling us as we went through Luke this morning and we're praising the Lord for our salvation, 
we praise the Lord that he gave us broken hearts and repentant hearts. And we've got to call people to repent and come to Christ as the only hope. So we'll pick up here next week. I have to write my note to say next week so I know where I stopped. And we'll come back to this and we'll keep going. So join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would overcome my inability at times to articulate the fullness of what I believe is in your word. But I pray, the Lord, you'd help my words to make sense to people. Not for my sake, but for our sake, so that we would accurately tell a lost and dying world of the only hope they have, which is to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. So I pray, Lord, that everybody in this room has done that. Pray if there's someone who hasn't repented and believed and gone beyond the belief that demons have, I pray that you would convict their heart this morning and they would turn to you. But for the rest of us, Lord, help us to be bold in sharing our faith, but also help us to be accurate in sharing what repentance and faith truly is. Help us, Lord, be your heralds in this day to call people to rend their hearts. We love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.